Welcome to the podcast, Estate Planning with Paul Rabelais, where we'll discuss the latest and simplest legal strategies and tactics available for you to protect your estate for yourself and your family, all in easy-to-understand terms. It's all about protecting your estate now, so you and your loved ones can reap the benefits later. And now your host, estate planning attorney, Paul Rabelais. Hey, so in this podcast, it's all about who will pay your long-term care expenses. So I'm Paul Rabelais. I'm an estate planning attorney. And uh, this is probably the one of the biggest concerns that people have as they get older and they start to dive into the topic of protecting what they have for themselves, for their kids, making sure they pass as much of it along as they can. They've worked hard for it. So this issue comes up um, almost in every conversation about uh, how you leave what you have to your family or your loved ones. So first, let me give give you just a couple of the long-term care statistics that are out, that are out there. I was checking out a government website called longtermcare.gov. It says that somebody turning 65 years old today has a 70% chance of needing long-term care services in their remaining years. And 20% of those turning 65 will need long-term care for more than five years. So some of you may be wondering, well, what does that tally up to? How much is that going to cost? And, you know, it, it depends on some things like, you know, where you are and what kind of care you need. But, um, you know, we usually start with just the typical you know, skilled care in a nursing home. And a company called Genworth has a pretty um, healthy um, oh, website or web page where you can look up what those costs typically are in your area and then what they're projected to be in years ahead. And I, I just took Louisiana as an example, says in 2018, um, kind of typical... Uh, nursing home private pay costs five thousand five hundred and forty two dollars per month. Then I projected it out to twenty years from now because somebody who's maybe fifty nine or sixty years old and trying to plan for that potential need for that care in the future, and maybe they'll need it, you know, in their eighties, for example. Uh, in two thousand thirty eight, that cost is estimated to be jumped from fifty five forty two to a little bit more than $10,000 per month. So needless to say, that can eat up a lifetime of savings. So I'm going to make this really a three-part series uh, because there's a lot of information to share about who will pay your long-term care expenses. And I'm going to divide it into a three-part series because really there's three options for who will pay for your long-term care. One is the government, another is an insurance company, and another is you. So this part one of three is really going to focus on when the government pays long-term care expenses. So I've had many a conversation with people about, um, you know, protecting what they have from long-term care expenses, Um, hundreds, maybe uh, probably thousands of those conversations, just one-on-one conversations with an individual, with a couple, with a family. 
And sometimes, you know, we have to educate them from the start, get questions about, well, doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm 65, I'm on Medicare, doesn't that cover all of my, you know, long-term care needs? Well, it, it doesn't. You know, Medicare, generally, they draw a line between your medical care, which they cover, and your custodial care, which they don't cover. Custodial care is things like bathing, eating, going to the bathroom, moving around, uh, getting dressed. Uh, That's that custodial care, and Medicare doesn't cover custodial care. So if you're going to need custodial care in the future, and if you're 65, there's a 70% chance you will, and a 20% 20% chance you'll need it for more than five years. Some people uh, start asking questions about, well, how can we protect what we have and, and you know, not lose all of our assets to the government if we get sick? Because there is a government program that covers certain people's long-term care expenses, and that uh, program in most states is called Medicaid. Medicaid is a word that sounds like Medicare, but it's two completely different programs. And really, I'm going to focus on the long-term care Medicaid program because each state has many different Medicaid programs. But I'm going to focus on the long-term care Medicaid program. Now, to have Medicaid cover your, you know, your custodial care expenses, your long-term care expenses, your if you're in a nursing home, nursing home expenses, you have to pass certain asset and income tests. And I'm just going to scratch the surface um, as far as what those rules are. As you might imagine, the government has many, many you know, rules and regulations on when someone does or doesn't qualify for Medicaid. And the consequences, if you qualify for Medicaid, then Medicaid's gonna gonna cover that expense or the bulk of that expense, uh, which we said earlier was fifty five hundred dollars a month, gonna go up to ten more than ten thousand dollars a month. And if you don't qualify for Medicaid, well, you're not gonna get any help from anybody. You're on your own for covering that expense. So many people do, you know, would like to to qualify for Medicaid. So let's talk about what some of those. Just some of the basic, most basic Medicaid rules are. So when someone goes into a nursing home, for example, um, and they apply for Medicaid, Medicaid's going to take a look at all of their assets and income. There's a fairly um, exhaustive, extensive Medicaid application that must be completed when someone is in the nursing home to determine whether they qualify for Medicaid or whether they must be a private pay patient in the nursing home and cover all of their expenses themselves. And again, the scratch the surface rules are, you know, they, they, you have to list all of your assets and then, you know, Medicaid verifies all of that with the um, you know, with, with all of the information that they have access to and that you have to give them access to And so essentially, um, you can own a home and a car, and in addition to your home and your vehicle, if you have more than $2,000 of other assets, you won't qualify for Medicaid. You must be a private pay patient in the nursing home. So those other assets that typically 
disqualify someone from qualifying for Medicaid. And I use the term assets. Um, some Medicaid offices use the term resources. Some use the term countable resources. Those things typically include money in the bank, like money you have in your checking account, in your savings account, in certificates of deposit. It includes other investments or financial products that you own, whether it's an annuity or uh, maybe you own stocks or bonds, maybe you own U.S. savings bonds. Um, IRAs and retirement accounts are included, at least in our state of Louisiana, as countable resources that you'd have to withdraw, pay the taxes, and then spend that money on your care. Real estate that is not your home. So if you have any rental property or raw land or many people co-own real estate with their siblings because they inherited from their parents, you know, we may see a, a person have a one-third undivided interest in real estate. Well, that's a countable resource that they would have to, um, you know, dispose of or sell uh, and use those proceeds in order to, you know, prior to any kind of Medi Medicaid qualification. So our Medicaid manual, eligibility manual in Louisiana, the, the portion of it where it where it addresses what is a countable resource is extensive, and so I'm just scratching the surface. But $2,000, uh, more than $2,000 of countable resources, uh, not going to qualify for Medicaid. And, and really the income rule, we really don't even look at the income until we determine whether that someone would pass the previously or just discussed asset test. But let's just, again, for our scratch the surface discussion, say that if someone passes the asset test and they have some income, it's common for for a senior citizen to have social 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 security income, also common for many seniors to have some pension income. Not all do, but some do. Um, you know, that's a a monthly amount that they're getting uh, automatically and they'll get it for the rest of their lifetime and maybe it will go on for their spouse after they pass away. So um, if if a, if someone in a, in a nursing home applies for Medicaid, they pass the asset test and they have some income, let's just say they have $1,500 of monthly income, they, they have to assign that income to the nursing home and uh, Medicaid picks up the, the difference you know between the cost of the care and that income that they do have and assigned to the nursing home. Now, um, with Medicaid, um, for many people, they have to plan ahead because some people attempt to transfer assets out of their name in an attempt to qualify for Medicaid in the future. Our scratch-the-surface discussion, um, even you, you can't even have a scratch-the-surface discussion without bringing up the five-year penalty period or look-back period, maybe the better term, um, because if, if, one, if someone goes into a nursing home and they apply for Medicaid, if they had made any transfers out of their name, um, sometimes referred to as uncompensated transfers, then that person will not be eligible for Medicaid, even if they meet the asset and income tests, because they 
had made transfers within the previous five years. So nonetheless, um, some people uh, do plan ahead and often with, with legal help and uh, because they want to follow the rules and they want to protect what they have. So some people do transfer assets out of their name, hoping to stay healthy during the five-year look-back period so that if they need long-term care, perhaps in a nursing home, more than five years after the transfers were made, they would be eligible for Medicaid because they would meet the tests and more than five years had transpired since they had transferred out of their names. Now, maybe my last scratch-the-surface topic on Medicaid planning is there's different ways to transfer assets out of one's name. Some people who kind of the do-it-yourselfers out there, they just take all of, let's call it, mom's assets, and they just put them into the kids' names. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe mom has a CD or some stock, and they just transfer ownership of that to the kids. Now the kids own it. And uh, or it might be land or it might be a home. It could be any kind of countable resource. Now, the, the reason people don't like to do that, I think the biggest reason people don't look, like to put assets into their children's names is they lose complete control over those assets that they've transferred out of their name. Now they're relying on their children to cover expenses that they may have. And children may have problems of their own. The children might get sick, might have divorce issues that cause problems, uh, might have creditor issues. Heck, sometimes children pass away before their parents. That causes a whole nother set of problems. In addition, when parents transfer ownership of appreciated assets uh, like the home, like real estate, like stock, which has appreciated since it was originally acquired by the parent, and the parent transfers that asset to the children. The children miss out on what's called a step-up in basis um, upon the parent's death, and the children are likely to pay a significant amount of capital gains tax when the children subsequently sell uh, that asset that had been transferred to them, and they might sell it before the parent dies or after the parent dies. But there's some, there's some potential, you know, pretty significant negative capital gains tax consequences um, when parents just straight out transfer ownership of assets to their children before they die. So, in order to um, maybe structure it a little wiser, it, many people. Uh, create certain types of trusts, again, a scratch-the-surface conversation, and then they transfer assets to their, I'll call it their family trust. And they do that typically for a couple of reasons. One is they can retain some elements of control over those assets after they've been transferred out of their name and into the family trust. Um, also, they by transferring it to a trust instead of transferring it to the children, um, they may very well be preserving some of the step-up and basis tax benefits that the children will be able to enjoy when the children sell the assets after the parent has passed away without incurring any capital gains tax. 
So that's kind of the the gist of this part one is realizing that there's uh, only three ways to cover long-term care expenses. One is the government with Medicaid, two is uh, insurance, and three is out of your own pocket. People who tend to attempt to take advantage of this first option of having the government pay for it through the government's long-term care Medicaid program, who does that? Well, who does it is people uh, who have seen others, friends, family members, others, people who have seen others lose assets to long-term care expenses. A lot of people call our office, come in, talk to me. They said, my neighbor, my friend, my mother, my uncle lost everything they own because they got sick. We want to make sure that doesn't happen to us. Typically, it's the middle class who engages in this kind of strategic planning. The mega wealthy, the people with millions of dollars of assets uh, and, and significant income, even in their retirement years, um, we don't typically see them um, try to arrange their assets to qualify for Medicaid because if they need long-term care, they can cover that expense out of their significant income and their significant assets without it causing a real damper on uh, on the inheritance to the children. And then, uh, you know, some people are, are very, you know, adamant about how they just want to protect what they have for their children or their, or their other heirs. So those are the types of people that we see, you know, tend to, to engage in that kind of kind of Medicaid planning. Uh, they've seen other as, uh, others lose assets. They're in that middle class where maybe they have uh, $300,000, $400,000, more or less of assets, and they foresee that all of that would be eaten up down to zero if they um, needed long-term care. People who typically don't engage in Medicaid planning, well, it's kind of the opposite. People who do have significant wealth, millions and millions of dollars, that um, covering a five to $10,000 monthly expense, you know, it's a drop in the bucket to those folks. So they typically don't engage in the Medicaid planning. People who have nothing, uh, if you have nothing, then you have nothing to lose. So people who have nothing, um, and haven't you know transferred anything in the last five years? Those are the ones who uh, really don't plan for Medicaid. Some people have long-term care insurance, and if they if they have the right kind and and it's going to cover those expenses, then they don't need to plan for Medicaid. And then some people, it's just too late. Um, you know, maybe maybe um, uh, Dad has significant dementia, and he's 92 years old, and he's progressing rapidly. It's just too late uh, because of this five-year look-back period um, to start something and that at best would enable him to qualify for Medicaid more than five years from now, you know, if, if he, you know, hasn't passed away, you know, prior to then and he's in a nursing home. So for some people, it's just too late and maybe he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even have the capacity to enter into the, into the transaction anyway. So the key there is really planning ahead. Um, you know, the people who are smart and kind of take advantage of what they can take advantage of, they usually start addressing these things 
sometimes in their 60s, sometimes in their 50s, uh, certainly in their 70s, um, up in the later 80s and the, in their 90s. You know, it gets, it gets tough due to capacity issues and timing issues that um, result in an attempt to protect what they have because the government's making it harder to qualify for Medicaid because our population is aging, the costs are going up, and uh, you know it just drains all of the uh, government resources when such a large population is is um, having the government you know incur that expense. So there you have it. That's part one of three parts of um, who will pay your long-term care expenses. We'll focus on uh, in part two. We'll focus on insurance covering that expense. And then in part three, we'll focus on uh, people having to you know, cover that expense individually out of their own pocket. So hope that helps. I'm Paul Rabelais. Go ahead and have a great day.